Welcome to the Write It Down podcast with the 1513 Network. I'm Brooke Murata bringing you one-on-one interviews to challenge, to inspire, and to encourage. Up next, number one New York Times bestselling author Nathan Whitaker hops on the mic. Nathan talked former NFL head coach Tony Dungy into writing his first book. Nathan is a husband, father, author, and speaker. Nathan shares his inspiring story that encouraged me to stay faithful in the small things. We have all been in a place where we've been at a complete standstill. For Nathan, it was three years until he had his big break. Sit back, relax, and get your pens ready because this is Write It Down. Well, Nathan, I wanna I wanna share your story. Um, I kind of want to start off with um, why you went into law. Well, I I really. It was not, like so many things in my life, it was not probably as well thought out as it might have been, which is, um, which really, I'm a planner and a plotter and kind of um, neurotic at times about overthinking things. Okay. And and yet, um, I was finishing up, I I actually had finished my third year of, of college, I was an English and political science major, English major because I liked to read and write political science because I kept taking these uh, Soviet foreign policy and international relations and Cold War classes. This was 1987, 88, 89, right as the Berlin Wall was about to fall. And all of a sudden ended up with a double major. So everybody thinks I planned out this law or politics thing with English and political science, but it was really more happenstance. I'm finishing my junior year and I decided I'd better figure out what I'm going to do with an English degree. And so I, I was going to take all the LSAT, GRE, GMAT, and, and figure out kind of where to go from there. And long story short, I took the LSAT first, uh, got a perfect score, wow. and thought, well, I better not waste that. I better go to law school. So fast forward then, and I'm finishing my third year at Harvard Law School. I'm talking to law firms and ended up clerking for a federal judge first. But I'm thinking, wait, I didn't mean to practice law. I was just kind of figuring out what was next. Yeah. And, uh, so anyway, that's how I ended up in law. Practiced for four years and and then moved on to other things. But but that's kind of the, the ridiculous path I took to, to that. And ultimately, it was a good experience. It was good training for me. Um, and the economics, frankly, were different than they are today, where, where tuition in law school is, is or any frankly, uh, higher education can be so crippling that it ties your hands for what you want to do next. Yeah. So for me, it was a good experience and, and good training, and then I could go into other things later. And, and some of the other things that you moved into were working for the Jacksonville Jaguars and the Tampa Bay Bucks. So what was, the, what was that transition? So I was working for uh, a law firm in North Carolina in Greensboro, fantastic people, great firm, a great place to be trained, where even as a young associate, the partners are very hands-on with their mentoring and and walking me through things and making sure I understood what the client needed and, and yet not ever doing anything that would, uh, there were no pressures to compromise who I was and my values. So it was great. Everything was perfect, except that I just didn't really enjoy practicing law. Mm. And so I looked for what would be next, interviewed with the NCAA for an enforcement position and um, realized that wouldn't be the right fit for me and ultimately ended up with a job with the Jaguars, as you mentioned, 
And they brought me in to do some legal work. But initially they said I needed to handle team travel. So my first six months I was in charge of travel. So I came in maybe two weeks before the first exhibition game. And so I was on the road headed to Charlotte and and trying to get an entire team there as well um, with nothing but a law degree to wow. back me. So that was an interesting experience, an interesting six months. And, and then after that, was able to do legal work, salary cap work, contract negotiations and the like. And... So it was. It ended up being a little more in line with what I wanted, what I thought I wanted to do. Right. Um, but that was my path into that. And I talk to people about uh, even now. I talk to to young people in particular, but others about the importance of owning our role, and and that the role we're in right now may not be what we ultimately want. And that doesn't mean we give up on our dreams or give up on our goals. Or, but it also means that you may be a part of a team where they need something in particular, whether it's taking a deposition or, uh, you know, filling out a seating chart for an airline, yeah. uh, for an entire football team wow. uh, that, that it needs to be done. So anyway, that's, that was my path to Jacksonville and how I kind of broke into the league was initially through that travel. Wow. Um, and yeah. I, I got to ask um, a little bit about that job of like managing travel for a football team. Like, what did that look like day to day? Like, did you go in, you know, on a Monday, like off of a game and then you got to replan for the next week? Was it, you know, six weeks out? What did that look like? Well, everything was the, the hotel contracts get set every year. And I ended up doing that my entire time in the NFL was as part of my legal duties was that I did the hotel contracts. Uh, and so you would schedule them as soon as the season came, as soon as the schedule came out in April, you would get everything pinned down, locked up, get bids from the airlines and, and figure out, you know, in consultation with the head coach, the general manager, there might be a trip where they would take coaches wives, or they might, there might be a trip where we're taking more sponsors for the team or whatever. So we might need a 757 this week, or we might need a 767 the following week. And so figuring out with the airlines and the like, so getting all the contracts done well in advance. But then, as you mentioned, um, one game ends and you're immediately getting to work on the next game. I would have already given them uh, rough rooming lists and, um, but then that would always change subject to injuries or who we thought we were leaving behind. And, and so I would get all that set uh, Monday, Tuesday, hit the road on Thursday to get to the other uh, city and be ready for that and be going over last-minute details, making sure that everything was set with respect to police escorts. Wow. Uh, most cities you can get a police escort. Um, it was interesting and it was I learned all kinds of things about jurisdiction and and the like that I didn't get from my legal background. Um, yeah, you know, you play Cincinnati, you play Cincinnati, and they're in Northern Kentucky. Or the airport's in Northern Kentucky, so the Kentucky State Patrol takes you to the border. At which point, as the buses are coming, you see the Cincinnati uh, Police Department officers waiting at the border. So as soon as you go across the border, you go from Kentucky State Patrol to the Cincinnati Police Force. And they take you into the city. Um, wow. And I'd really never paid attention to how close it was to the border of those states until I had to deal with two police.
Wow. Well, escort was in order. So anyway, doing all that kind of last minute stuff. And that's really not, um, that's really not my thing that, that kind of detail oriented, um, organizational type. That's just not, I'm, I'm really more of a, a creative type. Yeah. And so that was an interesting, uh, time for me. Yeah. I mean, I can imagine. And, I mean, uh, that stuff is like stuff no. you don't see. <laughs> When you like sit down to watch a football game, you're not thinking about the guy that, you know, orchestrated everything and called the airlines and called the hotel and, you know, dealt with the jurisdictions of different, you know, states. And I mean, that's incredible. Mm-hmm. And so and, and, and you say you're the, the creative type, but what was that transition um, from Jacksonville to the Tampa Bay? Like what what happened? What had to line up for you? Because ultimately, that's kind of what what led you to where like it opened doors for where you are now. Exactly. So I had been in Jacksonville. Um, I had actually passed on a chance to join the Patriots. Oh, wow. I'd only been in Jacksonville for about a year. I'm a Florida guy. So it was thrilled to be back in North Florida. So we just got to Jacksonville. My wife was six or seven months pregnant and the Patriots inquired. And my boss said, you know, go if you want to go, but if you stay here in Jacksonville, you know, you've got a, a path to promotion and the like. And so I stuck around in Jacksonville and then within a year realized that maybe some of those things weren't going to happen. And, and in fact, maybe, uh, it just wasn't a very clear path at all. Things got kind of muddled. And, uh, and so I realized that maybe Jacksonville was not a, a great long-term fit. I mm. uh, was really fortunate at the same time I probably could have stuck it out and things probably would have worked out fine. Um, but it made it a lot easier when I was at a law clerk reunion. I had clerked for a federal judge, as I as I mentioned briefly. And actually, I clerked for him in the 90s. Uh, he was appointed by Nixon and, and still is on the bench. So he's been a federal judge yeah. for a long time. But I clerked for Judge Hodges in the 90s. My dad had actually clerked for him in the 70s. And in between us, Rich McKay, who's now the president of Atlanta Falcons, had clerked for him. Wow. And so I'd go to these law clerk reunions and kind of be hanging out. And about the time I was realizing that things might not be as clear in Jacksonville as I'd hoped, Rich said to me, hey, I'm looking for somebody with your background. If you don't mind keeping your eyes open for somebody like that, I need that person in Tampa. I said, you know, I can do you one better than looking for somebody. Wow. And so that's how I ended up working for the Buccaneers, just the happenstance of of the relationship with Rich and and the like. So I came on board for Tony Dungy's last year in Tampa, the 2001 season, and then spent two more years there with John Gruden. Okay. Wow. There. And then, of course, and then, yeah. And 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 this is, I mean, this is the craziest part, and I and I love your story so much. Is you know, when you met Tony Dungy, you mean, your thing is, is you talk Tony Dungy into writing a book. Why, what, when, mm-hmm. what, what possessed you <laughs> to ask him to do that? <laughs> like, <laughs> what came over you? Right. Well, well I've gone through, um, excuse me, some crazy things in, in Jacksonville. And then I get to Tampa and um, just had a great first year with Tony. Um, I would say professionally, it was a very strange year because there were so many outside voices wondering if Tony would be fired and and the like, and he ultimately was at the end of that year. 
but within the building, the way Tony operated, the way he never responded to any of those outside voices, he would always say, you know, God's, my job is to coach. God's job is to figure out where I'm supposed to coach. Wow. So I'm not going to worry about that. And I'm just going to keep pressing on. And, and so I had seen some interesting things in Jacksonville, had a great year in Tampa, um, and then really kind of had two chaotic years after Tony had left in Tampa. And at the end of those two years, uh, Rich McKay would hire me left to go to the Falcons and Coach Gruden and, and the new general manager uh, fired a number of the rest of us. And so I was out of work trying to decide, do I go to the Seahawks or the Falcons or the Bears, where I had ties and offers to each. And ultimately, thought that uh, my experiences in, in the NFL were really not any different than my college friends were experiencing in the corporate world or my law school friends were experiencing the legal world as far as leadership vacuums and and chaos instead of teamwork and and complete uh, lack of balance in kind of a work-family relationship. And so I thought Tony's story could really help a lot of those folks like me. And so I pitched it to Tony. So here I am out of work. In 2004, I pitched it to Tony, and we kept talking over a period of time. He really wanted no part of it. He said... Um, you know, that, that he wasn't sure he had anything to share. And even if he did, he wasn't sure anybody was interested in what he had to share. So it wasn't until 2007, and I'm not great at math, but that was a long three years. I, I can't imagine. But yeah, so I was unemployed. Our church hired us, hired me um, to kind of keep us afloat uh, for a while in Tampa and while I pursued this. And, and ultimately, it ended up, uh, he agreed, and we ended up, writing quiet strength tony's memoir that came out in 2007 wow can you can you recall a few a few moments um during those three years because i think there are a lot of people that will listen to this that are in that quote-unquote three-year waiting period where they feel like you know god might be doing something god might be calling them um to do something big and they're in the waiting and so i think that that's like the most compelling part is while you had huge success and, and I can't wait to talk about that as well. I do know that those three years, I mean, you wonder, you start to wonder if God even cares about like your dream. So can you revisit those, mm-hmm. those dry three years or what those looked like? Right. You know, I, I tell, um, I tell folks when, when I get asked this, you know, one of the things we talk about is the the cliche, it's it's darkest before the dawn, and, and uh, hanging there, the sun's coming up, and the, but but it gets really, really dark, and and there's no, at least for me, there was no way to see when the dawn was coming, so this sense of, hey, if I just hang on another couple hours, you know, the sun's going to creep up above the horizon, there's no, you have no sense of, of the timing of this, and, and so there were some times it was really really bleak, really discouraging. Um, I remember one time my, my wife who was incredibly supportive and, and so were my parents and they helped us out a couple of times. And, uh, my in-laws never put any pressure on me, although their, you know, their son-in-law, they had to be looking at it scratching their heads thinking, what is that doing? <laughs> um, so everybody's totally supportive, but, but my wife at one point after about two years, um, we were to, we were somewhere out and somebody asked about a 
our family or what we did. And she said, oh, well, Nathan's writing a book. And, and so that the conversation went on and I took her aside later and I said, hey, let's not say that anymore. It clearly isn't going to happen. It didn't yeah. work out. Yeah. Um, I, I got to figure out something else. And now it's just embarrassing. Yeah. And, and she kind of, she, she was respectful of, of that, but really never kind of uh, gave up in her, in her thought that I could do this. Um, and thankfully it wasn't too much later that, that Tony changed his mind on things and we moved ahead. But, you know, I, I went through it all and, and not to fast forward to the successes, um, but, excuse me, to kind of drive home this point, I spoke in Boston uh, a couple of years ago and was going through this story and and tied it back into Tony Dungy's life first, that when he was raised, his parents always taught them uh, Proverbs 16.3, commit your actions to the Lord and your plans will succeed. Yeah. And so I was going through this about how I had tried to commit my actions to the Lord, and it was three years of, of wandering through the desert, but then my plan succeeded, and, you know, the verse doesn't speak to timing, and so we've just got to hang in there and keep pressing along and show grit and and the like. And so anyway, I went through this whole point. A friend from law school took me aside afterwards. He had been up there in the Boston area, and he'd heard it. And he said, man, that was fantastic. What a great talk, so moving, so wonderful, and... He said, and everything, I just loved everything about your talk, except for, you know, your main premise. <laughs> and I'm, what? what? What are you saying? And, and he said, look, I watched you for three years of going through this. And he said, to me, we're called to follow the calling on our lives. And that you felt you were called to write a book. And so even when you were going through these three bleak years where you thought you were doing what you're supposed to be doing, that was successful. And the fact that the book came out, sold a bunch of copies, hit the seller list, all that, he said, that's great, but that's not the end of the story. He said, you really, you, you can't, you can't sit there and look to the world patting you on the back wow. as the acknowledgement of you doing what you're supposed to be doing, that you know in your heart when you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. And I thought it was a powerful point so that even in those bleakest times, we can realize that it's not the failure yeah. that everybody else thinks. Uh, and and that we're actually doing what we're supposed to be doing, but it's hard. Boy, is it hard at times. That's I mean, that's like you, you hit the nail on the head right there. Is it's it? You know, the Lord could be telling you to do something, and it's not being validated in public yet. And that's when we start to worry. That's when we start to wonder: Did God really say this to me? Because hundreds of other people aren't seeing it. You know, they're asking me a lot of uncomfortable questions. And then I got to say, oh, well, like the Lord told me in my prayer life that I should be doing this. And it's like, okay, cool. And you almost feel like a little embarrassed. And you're like, and, and it's when the success comes that you're like, oh, thank God you didn't let me down because people were starting to wonder. And it's like, that shouldn't be the heart of it either. You know, it should it should be, right. you know, watching the Lord um, come through in big ways because it's ultimately for his glory. And we're just here on display for him. We're going to take a quick break from our show to discuss Patreon. Patreon is a secure site that allows creators to make albums, videos, and podcasts like the one you're listening to now. So if you enjoy, write it down. Please head over to our website, xvxiii.com or spell out 1513.com in your browser. Click on the Patreon banner at the top of the page and show your support. 
Write It Down is made possible by the 1513 Network, so please send over your love, your support for the other shows as well. If not, just stick with Write It Down because I'm the coolest, the realest, the illest. Anyways, back to the show. Um, I, I want to ask, what what changed Tony's mind to write this book? I mean, because he, sa- I mean, he said no, but I mean, and then eventually you guys did it. Right. Well, two years into the process, about the time that, that I was telling Amy, hey, this is never going to work, part of my thinking in that was not only uh, just it not, it not having worked out so far, but then Tony's oldest son uh, took his own life. Mm-hmm. And Amy and I were at the service, as were a number of other folks and, and people around, you know, a lot of people reaching out to Tony, a lot of people shocked and, and horrified, of course, and and so I was thinking, I even saw Tony 30 days later, and we were having lunch, and I said, you know, I know I've been bird-dogging you about working on a book, and, and I just wanted to, to say, you know, in essence, forget it. I, you know, I don't know how we'd deal with Jamie's death in, in print, and I'm sure you wouldn't want to revisit it anyway, and, and Lauren, and, and have to go through that. So, you know, forget it. I'm going to move on and figure out what's next and, and the like. And Tony's response, sitting there 30 days following the death of his son, Mm. he said, you know, I can't help but think that maybe I don't have a reason to finally write a book. That so many people, he said, I I wish this was, I wish I was the only parent going through this, but I'm not. And so many parents have reached out to me, probably because I'm head coach of the Indianapolis Colts, and helped me and helped Lauren and helped us along the way. If there's something that I can do to help somebody, maybe it's through a book that I can do that, then I probably need to think about that. And so that was kind of, I think, um, working in his mind. And then within eight or nine months after that, uh, they won the, the next Super Bowl, at which time publishers and others were were excited to talk to him, wanted him to do a book, where he got such feedback from his post-game comments when he said, you know, I'm thrilled to be the first African-American coach to win a Super Bowl, but I'm just as thrilled, if not more, to have tried to do things the Lord's way throughout mm. and got such a response to that that, uh, that people, uh, I think he realized that maybe there were people who, who wanted to hear what he might have to add in, uh, in a book. So those two things together, I think, helped kind of nudge him along. And, uh, and so that's when we set out to do it. It was in the uh, spring of 2007, right after they had won the Super Bowl. Wow. And, and, and when the completion of the book came, um, what was that success like? I mean, did it hit, when did it hit you that this was a success? Was it overnight? Was it a week later? Like, what was the thrill of that all? Right. So, I, you know, it's funny. I still... Um, Gosh, I'm going to get emotional talking about it right now. The the what, the moment of kind of um, that really still moves me probably as much as any, if, if not more than others, was when Tony called. I was at a staff meeting, um, church staff, and we were at lunch. And Tony called, and I stepped out and took the call, and and he said, "Hey, let's let's do the book and let's move ahead." And so I walked in. To, uh, to the senior pastor, and uh, you know, we the running joke was that he hired me to 
to take the men's and women's ministries and just completely run them, run them into the ground. <laughs> um, and I hope hope I'm exaggerating with that, but but that certainly was not again those those organizational skills and the like were were not always my gifting. Yeah. Um, and having no ministry background and the like, but anyway, they were very gracious to me. I walked in and said, walked back in and said. Um, Tony's agreed to do the book. Everybody knew that I'd been trying to do this for, for years. And so I took him aside and said, hey, Tony's agreed to do the book. And so we've got a really tight deadline. So if it's okay, I'm just going to give two weeks notice now. And and he, to his credit, said, you know, I know you've been following this for a long time. You need to just go now and get, and get going on that. Wow. And so we joked that he couldn't wait to get to get me out the door and and fix the uh, (laughs) ministry issues. But, um, but I walked in. So then from there I walked into the house. I didn't want to tell my wife over the phone and I walked into the house and she looked at me because Tony had tried to call me at the house first. So she knew something was going on. And I walked in and just hugged her and we both just started to cry that after two and a half years of trying to talk him into it, it was finally going to happen. And so that was a huge part of the success was just having the moment of, okay, what I've tried to do is going to happen. And, and so that was great. The fact that, and then it all almost happened too fast after that to really sit back and appreciate it. Yeah. Tony and I wrote the manuscript. We wrote it in a month. Um, and then it was published, printed, published, edited two and a half months after that. So we went from, Hey, I'll do it to there's a book in three and a half months, total crash schedule. And, then we did a media tour. I say we. Tony did a media tour that I accompanied him on, and and so he was on Letterman and Leno and uh, Good Morning America, and and so we're just flying across the country and and doing all this, and 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 then it opened at number two on the New York Times bestseller list. The next week went to number one, and spent six months in the top ten. So it was just. It happened so fast, and it was so remarkable that uh, that it almost was was dreamlike. That you think, you know, I was just hoping it. I just wanted to see it in print, and that was really the moving part for me was to actually hold it, wow. and then to have everything else happen so quickly um, was really remarkable and and really a lot to process. But a good a good thing to process, much yeah. better than uh, than all those times in the wilderness. Absolutely, I mean. The mountaintops are for sure way more fun. Um, but what, I mean, you don't appreciate it as much if you didn't go through the hard times, through the silent times, through the times where you're really wondering, because that's when you really see God's faithfulness is, oh, I see what you were doing there. You were refining me for this moment. You were humbling for me for this moment. The timing had to be perfect. I mean, and, and who are we to question God um, in that? Did you always want to be a writer? You know, um, kind of, before I get to that, let me just follow up on one thing you said that I absolutely recently said to me, how, how great it is to be on the mountaintop, but when you look around, that it's in the valleys that you see all the lush growth, mm. and, and, the, and the mountaintops are often sparse, and, and it'd be hard to remain there for long. Um, anyway, I just thought that was a, an interesting point, that so much of our growth does seem to take place from having gone through the valleys. And that has certainly been true for me. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I've, I've wanted to be a, I, well, I wanted to be a reader. 
<laughs> I think that's probably what I wanted to do. And I just love reading, love reading fiction, um, which I think ties into my books in a in a strange way. Uh, but I love reading, and was intimidated. I was I was in college. I'm an undergrad at Duke, and they had one creative writing class that was offered. Uh, small school, so just not a ton of offerings. So most of it was on the uh, literature end of things, American lit, English lit. But there was one creative writing course, and you had to submit a writing sample, and I was rejected. Wow. So I never took the creative writing class at Duke. Um, and then uh, that was at an, at an age where I started reading Pat Conroy, and he wrote uh, The Great Santini and, and Prince of Tides and some other things like that about the low country of South Carolina. And, and and when he would describe a sunset, it would take him a page and a half, and you'd think, oh my gosh, I can actually see it coming up over the marsh. Amazing. And most of the words in there, I'd have to look up, and certainly would have never known how to put them together. Yeah. So those two things together in college made me think that, you know, I could be a really good reader, but I, I certainly couldn't write anything like this. And, and so that was... I, I wanted to write, I loved to write, but but that was also very daunting. And and I didn't realize that I internalized that as much as I did, but when I started working on all this project, I really had to engage in a fair amount of self-talk and and then my wife telling me, hey, I've read your letters over the years, you write really, really sweet love letters. I'm <laughs> so sure you could write a book. Yeah. Um, but but those were, those actually set me back a bit and finally I realized that you know, I'm not Pat Conroy, and I still don't know those words, but I don't have to be. Yeah. And and so that was that was uh, liberating. Wow. And so when you, when you wrote with Tony, what was what was that process like? I mean, are you guys up till like two a.m.? Are you asking him deep, daunting questions so that you can you can put words to it for other people? Like, what did that whole sifting process look like when you're writing these chapters? Right. So. Um, yeah, so out to 2 a.m. sounds like, uh, when you think of the NFL, yes, we're out clubbing until 2 a.m. and then we get to work <laughs> on the book. Um, no, uh, Tony, um, so I'd gotten, you know, I'd, I'd worked with him for a year and then kind of chased him down for for two and a half years. And and during that process of the two and a half years, uh, I was kind of going to work on a on a bigger project. It wasn't going to be just about Tony. It was going to be on leadership and, and trying to figure out if there was a way to write a book kind of about Tony that wasn't necessarily his memoir, something he was comfortable with. And so I'd been with him in Indianapolis. I'd sat through his coaches' meetings. I'd been on the sidelines as they had lost to the Patriots in the playoffs and been to a variety of, of things around him. So I really had one year in Tampa and then a couple of years in Indianapolis where I'd really kept a close eye on him. So I had a really good sense of who he was professionally, how we dealt with things, and then and then a lot of our mindset is similar in the way we process things, which really helped in the writing, that I could kind of at times think of, here's how I would have reacted to this and the like, and, and kind of try to extrapolate that out. But what we ended up doing with that as the background was that I flew to Indy. We spent two full days together where he went through his childhood, his early years. I didn't know his parents, so he went through... Uh, telling me about both of both of them who were both deceased by the time we were writing. And and then I went up to the mountains of North Carolina and 
and just I was alone in in a house that my parents have and and was locked up there. So I would I would write from late morning to one or two a.m. and send it to Tony. I'd send it to my dad, who would try to clean it up. He's an attorney as well, and then send it to Tony. And Tony would go through and and make his edits. And Tony's mom taught English for twenty years, and so Tony's really got probably a better command of the language than I do. So Tony'd go through and clean up things. Very active in the process, and he would write. Uh, he'd line through things. He'd write H W above other words, circle them. And, and so I was so ignorant about um, the writing process and the editing process that I was a little bit intimidated. And I knew that the HW words were things that I needed to change, but I wasn't sure what the editorial remark meant, and I, I couldn't find it and trying to look it up. And and so finally, after a couple of weeks, I, I called Tony and I were speaking. We'd speak usually every morning, and he'd kind of go back through as he was driving into the Colts. He'd, he'd give me a call and tell me what he thought about the, the night before, what I had sent him the night before. And we'd talk through it, and then I'd see his edits as they would come through. and. And finally, I said, look, I'm so embarrassed to ask, but I don't get, I don't know what HW means. And he said, oh, that's a Harvard word. He said, I can't with HW because you got to put in a University of Minnesota word for me instead. <laughs> and so, so that was typical. Tony, of course, Tony with his vocabulary, I told him, we're certainly not dumbing this book down so that you sound like a typical football coach. <laughs> and so, uh, so anyway, Speaking we, we found HW. a medium between I'm sorry. I, I said you're sticking with the HWs. Sticking That's with right. It. That's right. When first came to shadow, we, we stuck with most of those. So that was kind of the process, the back and forth of that, just him being so hands-on. And, and on a subsequent book, as, as he went through and redlined, and I mean, there was an entire three pages where I don't think there was one word that was original to me. He had reworked everything. And, and I finally said to him, you know, I'm, I don't want to talk myself out of a job here, but you may not need me. And Tony said, you know, I don't think I confronted with the blank page. I'm not sure I could do it. But if you give me something to work with, then together we can tweak it and come up with something. And so that's been our formula, and it's, and it's seemed to work so far anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Can, can you describe to me a little bit um, or recall some scenarios of the media tour? I mean, you go from in, sitting in a house by yourself in North Carolina writing this book <laughs> to months later, you know, being in front of people, seeing, you know, interacting with people you probably never would have imagined you'd interact with, especially a guy that used to call for hotel reservations and airlines. I mean, that's that's crazy to me. So at some point you're, you're sitting there behind the scenes with Leno or Letterman and you're like, uh, what is life right now? So can you recall maybe a, a right. story? So, you know, one of the, one of the stories that... Um, that I've always appreciated was that Tony was trying to decide, um, should he do Letterman or Leno, that people had told him that once you're on one, there's a good chance you won't be on the other because they're competing for eyeballs and they don't want to be the second person to have somebody on. So kind of once you've made your choice, you've made your choice. And so Peyton Manning, Tony's quarterback in Indianapolis, had told Tony that between the two, Leno felt more low-key. And so... Peyton said, you know, I know you've done tons of media and the like, but if there's part of you at all that's anxious about this, it might make sense to start with Leno. And so Tony started 
so Tony chose Leno. And so we flew to LA. We had done a couple of days in New York and, and just, you know, an amazing experience. Good morning, America, meeting Robin Roberts and doing all that. But now we're going across country for Leno and, and we, you know, we walk in the back, you go there and the, the other guest that night was John Travolta. Wow. Um, and and so even Tony is taking his picture outside Travolta's dressing room door, um, with with the name behind him, and so we were all just really excited just to be there. And sure enough, Jay Leno walks in into Tony's dressing room while we're all hanging out there, and he's just wearing jeans and you know a flannel shirt as you would expect. I mean, just kind of typical. And he's just shooting the breeze with everybody and making sure that Tony's relaxed and comfortable. And hey, we're going to make this so easy, Tony, and this will be so fun. And, and it worked out great ultimately in the long run that uh, David Letterman, by virtue of being an Indiana guy, had said to Tony, you know, I know you went on Leno, but I really want to have you on my show as well because just love the Indiana connection here. And so it worked out that we were able to do both. But just that, that whole experience of being backstage at, at Leno and and getting to hang out with him and have a picture taken. And that was just really an amazing, oh my gosh, three months ago I was holed up in a cabin yeah, uh, working on this. And so anyway, that was a, uh, that was a really fun moment. I, I mean, I'm, I'm in awe right now. I feel like I would probably freeze behind the, behind the, the scenes with Jay Leno. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm just like, wow, I can't even imagine. And just also like hearing, the whole the whole build up to that moment. I think that's what makes it again kind of going back to that whole mountaintop, you know, of I mean, and even Tony, you said Tony said it. I mean, there's a lot of outside voices, but but our job is to to listen to the Lord and what he has for us. So it's moments like that 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 matter to us that are like really sweet. You're just like, "Wow, Lord, like thank you for seeing me through when everybody else thought I was crazy." <laughs> like it's, it's a really right. awesome. Absolutely. It's an awesome moment. Um, where are you at now? I mean, you're, are you still writing? What's What's that look like for you? Are you Are you still doing hotel reservations? Can you help me? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm I'm doing my own hotel reservations. Yeah. So yeah. sure, we can figure out the, <laughs> what connections I've got. That's awesome. Um, yeah. So um, so. Still writing. I am doing, um, still got a couple of book projects in the early stages. Tony and I had a book come out this past uh, January, and it was called The Soul of a Team, and, and it was a teamwork book, and really fun for me. So I did mention fiction earlier, and I wrote, along the way, I've written a, a fiction book for uh, for kids, which was fun. Um, and then this book with Tony was kind of our first foray into fiction ourselves. It's a business fable, but we took, in order to get these principles out, yet not embarrass anybody, we took some of the dysfunctional things we'd seen from the NFL, from corporate America, and what we'd experienced ourselves and, and kind of wrapped it into a fictional team, the Orlando Vipers. And, and so we have dysfunctional ownership and wide receivers and, and so a lot of things are kind of, you can kind of see where they might have come from headlines over the last few years, but we were able to fictionalize it. And so that was a lot of fun for me uh, to do the fiction, to have, you know, Tony was not uh, as concerned with this because actually probably most of his friends have been mentioned in various books, but I've got 
got several friends who were like protagonists in this book because we needed names. And so I'd ask, hey, do you mind if I make you the, you know, the wide receiver who can't get along with anybody? <laughs> and uh, and friends would always give give uh, their agreement to that. So anyway, it was a fun process to write and to come up with. But the other thing that I think makes sense to me with with respect to um, the fiction and telling you earlier that I like to read fiction, I had a writer tell me when I first started on Tony's first book, write what you would want to read. And so I, and I said, okay, well, that's, that's great. But give me, you know, give me the real bullet points on, on how to write. And he said, no, that's really my only rule. And what mattered to me then and reading through that was working on Tony's memoir. And, and so many memoirs can often be a recitation of dates and events and, and just kind of, and then this happened and then this. And so I tried to, to take it from the standpoint of, okay, if I'm reading uh, fiction or if I'm reading a mystery or something like that, some sort of story that's unfolding, what would keep me going through Tony's book? And obviously I couldn't, I had to work with what I had. I couldn't fictionalize anything or make anything more dramatic. But in keeping an eye toward, and I've tried to do that with all my books, what would compel me as a reader? Do I, every now and then Tony would flag something and say, hey, the end of this story, you know, this story started in high school, but really it was a teaching moment because it came up right before the Super Bowl, again, the same principle. And so we ought to mention that. And I'd tell Tony, no, as a, as a reader, I think we actually should hold that last bit of the story until it matters before the Super Bowl. Let's not, let's not give them too much too soon. Let's, let's kind of hang on to that. Right. And so that was kind of the fiction background of, of what would keep me going and where would the surprises be and the like and, so anyway, that's a really long answer um, to that. The other part, briefly, um, with respect to the soul of a team that just came out, is that it's allowed me to do a lot more speaking myself. Yeah. And so I've I've spoken in the last couple of weeks at William and Mary and Duke and Charleston Southern and Florida Atlantic University, and then several corporations, and headed down to Orlando. And um, looks like I've got a couple of international. Uh, speaking events coming up next year, so wow. so that's all been really fun to have those those folks um, be interested enough in the message of teamwork and and, and a well functioning team and and bringing me in to do that. So that's been a fun part as well, and has led to all those hotel and airline reservations. So. <laughs> well, I, I have to say, whenever whenever the you were given the advice, like write something you'd want to read, I think that's so interesting when it pertains to your life because you always said you wanted to you, you love to read and so how cool is that I mean I think even that goes with communication the best communicators are the best listeners so you know the, the best writers are the, the best readers and so and having like um being able to have empathy for the person that is reading what you're writing I think is what sets you apart as an author so I think that's um Really amazing. And, and, and speaking of writing, this show is called Write It Down. Um, and each guest has a write it down or a takeaway that they want the audience um, to remember. So as we as we wrap this up, what is something that you want us to remember about your story? Well, so one of the one of the write it downs that um, that has become more and more important to me as I've as I've done not only more writing, more speaking, but just kind of trying to work through life and, and process things is, is, um, 
writing things down. Mm-hmm. And I carry now uh, five or six, just three by five index cards with me everywhere I go. And I ran across this actually probably three or four years ago in a book called The Organized Mind by a UCLA brain researcher. But just talking about how we are just slammed with new information every day in a way that we never have been with uh, the advent of the internet and and social media and the like. And just how ill-equipped we are to process it. And so whether it's a quote, an idea, something I need to act on, whatever, the more things I can offload um, or write down verbatim because my memory is, all our memories are faulty as we try to pull up uh, things that we've remembered and recall them. I've realized that actually writing things down has become a huge part of who I am and, and how I work through things. So it could be anything from as simple as grocery lists to what I need to uh, make sure I need to make sure I drop one of my children a note or something like that. And, yeah. and just kind of having a chance to, to write those things down to reference back to them. And, and then I'll sort through them later, but it's amazing the nuggets I'll find two weeks, three weeks, two years later and think, oh my gosh, I forgot about that, that, that tough time I went through or, or the note I made about, you know, make sure I'm more intentional about X or Y and how helpful that's been. Yeah. So my write it down is actually to write it down. And, and the other part too, and just to, not to get too far into the weeds, but the fewer things you can put on one note card. So usually I'll just put a concept or a thing to do, uh, you know, don't forget to write my daughter a note or don't, instead of doing a to-do list for the day. And then if I, if I get through it and I'm done with, you know, I've already gone to Sam's and gotten everything, I'll throw that card away. If there's something I might need to reference back, I've got a, then a way to, to put things into quotes or to put things into family items or, and I'll, and I'll file that away for another time. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I love that. Keeping things simple and actually writing it down. Hey, I, I love that. And I love also what you said about, you know, the, the forgetfulness, if you don't write it down, you know, um, and that's like the whole, the whole thing is it's really, really, um, it's really hard when you're in the valleys to remember the mountaintops. And then when you're in the mountaintops, it's really hard to remember the valley and the struggle. So when you, when you write things down and can reference those, I mean, that's where like the magic happens. That's where the growth happens. That's where, um, you really can start to relish in what God's doing in your life and, and the people that he's brought alongside of you. So, um, man, write it down is write it down. Nathan Whitaker. Thank you so much, um, (laughs) for, for hopping on the show and sharing your story. And, um, I'll try not to stalk you on Instagram anymore, but now if I do, I'm going to start commenting. (laughs) I'm going to start commenting HW because I love that. That's right. Perfect. That's great. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate your time, um, this morning and for coming on the show on Write It Down with the 1513 Network. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Write It Down podcast. This podcast is a part of the 1513 Network. You can catch a variety of shows on their website, 1513.com. If you enjoy listening to Write It Down, please subscribe, share with your friends, and if there's any ink left in your pen, write a review. For more content, follow the fun on Instagram by following at W-I-D-P-O-D. That spells WIDPOD. Super cool. Stands for Write It Down Podcast, but it's abbreviated to WIDPOD. Anyways, thanks for listening, and we will catch you later.